This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios here in my garage. I am a 19-year-old musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you guys, I make music out of my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hit makers work from home studios, so maybe we can help one of you accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, we wrapped up part three with Tony Shepard. It was a great three-part episode. It was our first three-part episode, and hopefully first of many more. You can check that episode out and lots of other great music podcasts at our network site, pantheonpodcasts.com, as well as our site, bluegirlproductions.net, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today is really cool. We're going to have a lot of fun. Today, I'm talking to Mr. Warren Sokol. Come on, man. And with the local DBC news, Ed Kuja with a triumphant comeback. More But tonight, don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. I'm rocking my pants, foot socks and beer. Making the tears rain down like a monster. For being one of the younger guys that I've talked to on the show, Warren Sokol has built up quite the impressive career and the impressive resume, having worked on records by Paul McCartney. Lana Del Rey, and even remastering things like Mama's Gonna Knock You Out by LL Cool J and being on the remaster team for Supertramp's Breakfast in America, the assistant engineer of which was on the show in episode 8, Lenny Spent. Because of this, Warren has quite a wide variety of music taste and quite the ear, so his opinion is very, very interesting because he comes from so much different music. Today, we're talking about a bit of everything about how he got into his career and where he is now. So without further ado, 
here is my conversation with Warren Sokol. Mr. Warren Sokol, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you for having me. Thank you for coming on after after much uh, after much technical difficulty. <laughs> so, I I think uh, I I ask this question in general, but I think in light of technical difficulty and and in uh, this crazy profession we are in in general, why why audio? What what got you into this profession? Um, originally, like I'm being a musician, like a lot of people, I think I was, uh, in high school and got into music and playing in a band and, uh, had plans of moving out West. You know, I grew up in Nebraska, a small town in Nebraska. So, you know, there's a big plan to move out West. And, <laughs> um, after graduating high school, it's like, well, I would like to know what we're doing when we're recording. Because we had done some recording ourselves then, you know what I mean? I wanted to know what was going on in the studio more. I was getting fascinated with it. Um, sure. So I went to a recording school, the recording workshop in Chillicothe, Ohio. And uh, it was a great school. I learned a lot. I read you know, that, that fundamental knowledge of signal flow, what a mic preamp is, what this is, what that is. The five simple processors we have that there are now millions of versions of. Right. Learning, learning those fundamentals, you know what I mean? Um, and then I actually didn't end up using any of it for about four or five years because my band started playing a lot and we had some label people talking to us. And so we were, I kind of laid off the recording thing for a while. And uh, as it happens a lot, the, the label stuff kind of ended up filtering away as one of the guys in the band uh, dropped out and, I still had my recording gear, so I started kind of recording myself and really getting to understand what an EQ is. And I'm not going to lie and say I could even hear what compression was back then because, um, mm -hmm. you know, I just murdered everything that I worked on. But I le learned a lot because I could sit there and twist dials endlessly. You know, and, but before that, five years before that, that wouldn't have even been possible. There was, you know, gear was starting to become cheaper. Right. So, Anyway, I'd kind of put together my own home studio and recorded a bunch of uh, friends' bands and different stuff like that and was starting to get some customers. And it was like, well, what can I do that's going to be better than everybody else? <laughs> you know, because everybody's starting to get a home studio now. Yeah. Once again, in complete ignorance, I go, hey, if I buy a mastering compressor and a mastering EQ or just some kind of mastering gear, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. quote unquote master everything that I mix, which basically everybody does now. Um, yeah my stuff's going to be better than yours. And so I started really learning about mastering and it was, it, it, it just, it clicked. It was, it was, it, you know, I had a natural talent for just knowing what I was supposed to hear. I don't know how to teach anybody that I can teach you how to run an EQ. I can, you know, I can teach you pretty much anything about audio, but how to know what you want to hear and get it is just something that came naturally specifically in mastering. I can do that in recording and mixing. But there was just some kind of, of thing. And the editing and the technical part of you creating the final, the final map, you know, the production master, what's going to go out to the world. Right. That's another part. I guess I kind of went beyond your question, huh? You were asking about audio. I should have stopped t two minutes ago. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of the beauty of the podcast. Is you, can, <laughs> you, can, you can find out everything from one very, very short, very, very simple question. Um, I suppose in a way... It, I mean, you have a recording school background, but even so, it, 
your your story sort of mirrors mine in that you had uh, like for me i had a little bit of a mentor and then all of a sudden i i i was already in a band then i had a mentor and then all of a sudden he was upgrading his rig and he had a very simple rig at the time and he went you you want my old rig and i went sure okay <laughs> you want to hear something funny um the, one of the reasons why I was able to, like, okay, so what I was just telling you about before was kind of a small home studio I had, and that grew into a bigger one. And at a certain point, a friend brought over his Mac that had Pro Tools in it, and I had, mm -hmm. you know, kind of an outboard system, and we would mix down into it, or I would, I'd, basically, I had endless hours at one point, because he just left it at my house, to start learning Pro Tools, and I went through every folder in that computer, didn't know computers very well at that time, found all kinds of plugins installed, some of them were cracked, this is over 20 years ago, don't arrest me. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I ended up, I can't even imagine how many probably months or years worth of time I spent in there getting to know an equalizer and having at that point, finally, a plug-in equalizer that had that visual graph, which, right. which by the way, nowadays I would rather not have that graph there because you end up looking at it too much. But to teach me to give me a visual in my head of low frequency, mid frequency, high frequency, I can vi visualize it in my head now, and yeah. and I can see it, and I know what I'm looking for, and I know that these are larger frequencies and those are smaller frequencies, and just a whole lot of of stuff was was learned without anybody really. I'm not going to say I didn't have any teachers because I did. There was a, a guy that named Dave Nichols that owned a studio in Phoenix that I worked with a lot that just taught me so much about getting over gear, you know what I mean? And, and, and making music. <laughs> and to this day, I'm still very adamant about labeling things and setting things up so that when I'm working, I'm not dealing with gear. I, I forget about it. I don't care about gear. I got over my gear lust about 10 years ago, working at Universal and people would bring stuff by all the time to demo. And I got to try pretty much every piece of gear that I've ever been interested in. And, mm -hmm. um, for the most part, I didn't want most of it. I want, I, in the end, what I want is the thing that's going to work the most often really well and doesn't take an hour to get there. And there's, a, you know, that takes more than one piece of gear, but I don't need a room full of gear. You know what I mean? I like it to be clean and concise so I can listen to music and make decisions that feel right instead of going, well, this knob isn't particularly exactly on 0 0.0001. <laughs> so I need to change it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want that right. I don't get away from the gear. But um, anyway, right. Once again, I think I kind of went off on a tangent there. You caught me on you a know, really talkative day. <laughs> hey, man. Again, the, that's kind of the beauty of this thing. You can, you can, you can go however long you want. Um, once again, I have to kind of say that sort of parallels me in that you know, I, I or I guess I parallel you in a way in, in that like. Uh, for a while, I had a bunch of outboard gear, and admittedly, it was a lot of cheap, kind of shitty outboard gear. But I liked having the outboard gear, and I liked having the option to do hybrid mixing. And after a few years, I kind of went, you know what? I don't like the fact that I have all this outboard. I'm, I'm, I probably could sell or donate about all this stuff, and you know, get one nice piece or two, or not even, and just go in the box. And so, for the past couple of years, I've been in the box because. There's really, there wasn't anything that I felt I needed necessarily to do what I had to currently. 
it, it just made sense for me to be in the box and and for sake of simplicity that was that was the best thing and i so i when you talk about having a, a simple streamlined rig i completely understand that and i can i can i can uh feel for that and empathize with the with the sentiment yeah. um on the topic of rig um what is your rig now and i guess in in by by way of that question for for historical purposes how did you get to the rig that you are it was a lot of trial and error did you have a lot of um suggestions what where did you get to with the rig you have now or the rig i, I guess pre-pandemic right yeah so actually it is different pre and post pandemic um before the whole pandemic thing started i was working at i had a studio at united recording in phoenix or, i'm sorry in los angeles and uh, unfortunately, things were shut down so much that I ended up um, leaving Los Angeles last year around December. And I'm in Phoenix at the moment setting up a new studio. And um, that's a poignant question because I'm actually paring things down a lot. Um, in addition to what I was saying before, I, I'm really going a lot more in the box now. I, I just don't, there isn't a whole lot of things that I can't do digitally that I can do analog. Um, Sure. The technology's just gotten so good that I just, I don't, I've never been on that fence, Mac, PC. I've always used both. I don't care. They both have problems and both have, have benefits. Same with analog and digital. I, it, to me, it's just audio gear. I've never understood the fight between it. Use them both. They both got advantages. They both have disadvantages. But um, I just don't see the reason to have a bunch of outboard gear that you got to constantly do recalls on that are never going to be exactly the same when you could just open up a session and recall your settings. When it comes to technical stuff like precision EQ or even pretty much EQ in general, except for a couple of, of maybe outlier type things, but EQ, limiting, DSing is 100% better in the digital world. Um, yeah. All, I would... all kinds of stuff. But, but basically where I'm at, like if I have maybe one really great compressor, analog compressor, the things I can't do digitally are... There is good com digital compression, but there's still something that sounds better to me in an analog compressor. By the way, I, I agree with use, that. Yeah, I do use digital compressors. There's great, there's great ones, but there's something that just seems smoother about a digital compressor and more real. I'm sorry, analog compressor. Um, I don't necessarily need analog EQ, but I would if I was basically the idea that I'm putting together at the moment is I have you know Crane Song Titans for my main analog compressors. Gorgeous. A Manly Massive Passive. Um, which I've had since, but when I said before, like I bought some mastering gear, what I bought was a Manly Massive Passive and uh, uh, very new. And I've had a Manly Massive Passive for 20 years now. Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I spoke to Ivana not that long ago. That's that's one of her mo that's one of her favorite uh, designs of ever, uh, uh, that they yeah. ever released. I mean, you know, so for for I'm gonna buy a bunch of mastering gear. Good choice, man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I uh, be honest with you, I don't. I had a, that and a very mu, and those were my two pieces of gear for probably ten years as I was kind of learning. Right. And I still use a massive pad. It's unique, and it's colored, but not so much you can't use it on a lot of stuff. And it just does things that other other gear doesn't. That just seems to fit right for what I like to hear. Um, but yeah, that thing's great. I've always loved those. I the other thing that I chose at that time was the very mu compressor so i got i was all set up with the manly stuff and by the way great compressor but i do not own one of those anymore and i just i don't feel man very mu compression has gotten so popular in the past couple of years 
Yeah. P- particularly in focus with mastering, but I do not like the sound of most of them when it comes to mastering because they're kind of soupy and thick, which, by the way, is perfect for a lot of stuff. But yeah. And by the way, different varimus sound different, by the way. But I just I got to the feeling like I wasn't ever using the manly for compression. If I was using it, it was for driving gain into the input tubes and getting mm-hmm. coloration. And I have some kind of custom boxes that I use for that that are, are cleaner and they don't impart compression in any way. Um, or with the manly, even if your threshold's zero and your VUs aren't moving, you're compressing usually by at least a dB or two. <laughs> so it's always compressing. Um, right. But yeah, right. so... Uh, so yeah, as far as like what I'm putting together at the moment, it's mainly one compressor that's extremely versatile. Um, in my opinion, that I can get pretty much anything I need out of a Titan. Dave Hill designs Titan, um, except very new style compression. <laughs> so I would like to add some kind of tube compressor to that in the future. But basically, a, a, some Titans, a Manly Massive Passive, and I have a couple of outboard gain boxes. That's the other thing that I cannot do digitally is... A lot of what I used to do, I don't always use compression and limiting to get loudness. A lot of it sometimes has to do with harmonics and enhancing harmonic quality by driving gain into a certain device that whose transformers and input circuitry respond in a way that just starts waking stuff up and makes it come alive without changing the mix at all. <laughs> yeah, and, and in most cases, that also adds a little bit of volume. So you do that in a couple of places really really subtly and you end up with this picture that's got tons of dimension and depth and width and everything's extremely detailed but it doesn't sound different from the normal mix it just sounds like the mix they intended to make you know um so anyway that's something else i don't see happening digitally there's all kinds of clippers and you know tube this and tube that digitally but it's not the same as bending voltages you know what i mean when i'm driving gain and i don't by the way that's not a technical term <laughs> but when i'm driving gain into like the the input of the massive passive was something i love to just drive a clean gain into crank mm-hmm. like a db or two into the massive passive and whether i was using it for eq or not it's transformers and tubes would accept that in a way that would just wake stuff up make it come alive make it a little bit louder you know what i mean (laughs) totally Um, yeah but and it feels like when i'm doing that like i don't know once again this isn't technical but what it feels like is i'm bending the voltages you know what i mean i'm like shaping them and and mushing them up like clay where when i'm doing that kind of thing digitally it just sounds like i'm adding distortion and i never like it i have not heard any of that stuff digitally that sounds anything by the way real quick any plugins there is the i use the crane song head for my main converter and it's harmonic stuff is digital but it doesn't sound digital it, it does what it does in the analog world um i don't know how the right. hell he does it but it's the only thing i've heard um that does that he has a plugin that only works in pro tools um i forget what it's called a friend of mine just bought it recently and is loving it i have not heard that so but yeah I'm, i the only things i'm not really digging in the digital world are Compression, and there is good compression, but it's not always what I'm looking for. And harmonic and gain qualities that I can just start, you know, driving things into each other and see what starts waking the song up, you know? Well, let me let me ask you this. As far as compression, I, I think, because you're, you're also recording in a mix engineer, primarily a mastering engineer, I know that now. But, it, uh-huh. but as a recording in a mix engineer... I think would would you agree with me that compression is very good in the recording and mixing world, but 
mastering hasn't necessarily caught up yet. To to my mind, the mastering world was is kind of the last place where in the box mastering it it it's not all there yet. Whereas like a lot of people can, you know, I I love using Andrew Sheps for the example because he was mixing on two neat consoles and a wall of you know two hundred thousand dollars worth of rack gear. And then he went to a an iMac and a pair of I don't even remember what speakers he's on, maybe Genelex, but mm-hmm. you know I feel like he can do that because the world of mix engineering has caught up in that sense, but not mastering grade plugins. Right. Is that something you've noticed? Would, would yeah. you agree with that sentiment? And as having watched kind of the digital revolution, like when I went to recording school, it was on tape machines and they had cleared out a closet and put a computer in there and called it the new tech room. And that's where you were learning how to edit digitally. (laughs) And by the way, there's no waveforms. You were editing digitally by time code anyway. Right. um, But yeah. So having watched the kind of digital thing come of age to where it was crap, but it was convenient. And then some of it was good. And now a lot of it's good. The thing that I've really noticed what you're saying, I, I, I agree with. But I don't know if it just has to do with the tools as much as to do with the subject that you're working on. When you're EQing or compressing an individual track, it's a singular waveform. It's a bass track. You know right. what I mean? And it may have some sustain and some, some transients, but for the most part, it's going to be bass. You know what I mean? You're going to have your mid-range pluckiness and all that, but it's a bass instrument. It's doing one thing. Right. Boom, 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 boom. You know what I mean? And, you know, <laughs> and, he, and even if you're... EQing or compressing a bus, it's a bus of it's stuff that it's, right. it's, it's vocals stuff that, like with like, vocals with vocals, guitars it, with guitars, keys exactly, with keys, drums right. with drums. So you've got a, a, a more of a simplified waveform as opposed right. to a complex waveform that includes bass, treble, all these different components and depth and width, and you're trying to keep it all in there and keep it, you know what I mean? So I, I totally agree with that. Um, at the same time, it's really gotten amazing. <laughs> like I, I I really I used to not be that guy I oh, I want my analog gear and part of it is I like turning the fucking knobs you know what I mean I like to I don't yeah like, completely I, don't, I do not like mixing with a mouse or I'm starting to even say mixing I don't like EQing with a mouse I don't like any of it I like to be able to put my hands on something and turn it um push actual buttons but is uh, does that slow me down? You know, <laughs> I don't know. And there's lots of cool controllers. I've been looking at a couple of controllers to add to kind of make up for that kind of stuff. Sure, <clears throat> but um, anyway. Well, on the topic of plugins, since we've talked about plugins a lot, what do you think of the Isotope stuff? Because I know for for the small project mastering rig, a lot of the in the box guys, they just you know put it in wave lab, slap isotope on it and call it, this is my master. Right. And by the way, if, if you're mastering your own stuff, there's no reason not to do that. You know what I mean? A lot of it is so totally good. isotopes. Great. Um, ozone's great. I've used it since like ozone three. Um, as far as the sound of the individual processors, they seem to change a lot from version to version. And sometimes they're great. And yep. sometimes they're not as great. <laughs> um, I noticed that the first time with the harmonic device in ozone, in Ozone 3, it sounded great. In Ozone 4, it sounded great. And then we upgraded to Ozone 5, and suddenly I wasn't getting the same thing out of it at all, and I've never heard it sound the same since. Um, but uh, anyway, other than that, I think Ozone's really, really great. Um, I use the Ozone Limiter quite a bit. Uh, gotcha. It, it adds a, a kind of a crunch and a tightness, you know what I mean? So it's not what I'm using for everything, 
but I like it on hip hop stuff because it adds this crunch that isn't digital distortion. And by the way, crunch might not be the right sound, but kind of an edge to a tone. I, I, I understand what you're talking about. It's it's that sort of harmonic distortion without harmonic distortion, but you know it's there kind of yeah. vibe. Yeah, yeah. It, it adds some, like, some kind of edge to it, which is nice. You know, like sometimes a limiter will kind of smooth things over. And that's not what you want for a hip hop track or a metal track in most cases. And the ozone limiter does a great job of doing the limiting and keeping it bright and punchy and edgy. Well, I, I, I completely agree with that lately. Um, so back in October, we, I had, uh, I produced this thing. Well, it was really in August, but it got released in October. Uh, it was this, um, it was really funny. It was called the ballad of Sniffy McAdderall. It was, it was a, uh, anti-Donald Trump song. Um, we did not actually say his name in the song at all, um, but we called him Sniffy McAdderall. I'll send you the video. I did the video. <laughs> it, was, it was a whole lot of fun, and it was just like this giant joke. But um, it, was a, it was a bluegrass song. It's a straight bluegrass song. You know, if you change the lyrics, you'd, you'd, you'd think that was a, something that got released in the 60s kind of vibe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, some cover of, of a 60s bluegrass song. And now, by by February, I started working on hip hop, and it was a very very different workflow. And I, so I can I can understand you know you want some things on on certain genres and and others on others. This this brings me to a question. I know you've done some work with Paul McCartney. You've done some mastering stuff uh, for Paul McCartney, um, and obviously you do a lot of hip hop too. Um, how does your workflow change between genres like a like a Paul McCartney album to a Florida Georgia Line record or uh, <laughs> st- something something of that ilk, little Lil Xan kind of vibes, right? Um, if it's an unattended, unattended session, I got to tell you, it doesn't change a lot because what I'm doing is always tailored to the song I'm working on. So I always start with a blank slate, listen to what I got, and. Sometimes I'll start playing with things and see what what happens. Other times it's just obvious what needs to be done. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So I wouldn't say my workflow necessarily changes because it can change from song to song on an album in the same way, depending on what's being worked on. Um, so like I don't have any kind of preset for this or that. Now, if people are attending, that's a whole other story because it can totally affect how you're working. Um, right. And, and how we're actually, are we able to just kind of experiment? Or every time I experiment with something, do they start freaking out? And by, I mean, that happens all, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, you know, people will freak out every now and then. Is there a problem when I'm switching between the master and the source because there's a, a time delay between them from all the processing? <laughs> right. Like, oh my God, well, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? But that, that's not, maybe not even a good example. But the workflow does change depending on people being attending or not attending. But as far as my focus, that doesn't change because I'm not, there's no one goal that I'm looking for. I'm listening to the song and letting it tell me what it, what it can and can't do and how far I can push it or what it needs to be done. Sure. You know what I mean? Totally. And real, real quick, one other reference to that is, and this may come out wrong, but I'm not sure how else to say it. But in a lot of cases, and not because I'm lazy, but I'm looking to do as little as possible. Well, no, I, I I completely agree with that. I mean, I I don't do enough mastering to to have a complete grasp, but understand in my limited understanding of how to be a mastering engineer, it it's really you know, um, it, it really is 
do minimal so you so you let the mix shine i mean it's like if if the if the goal is to color it that's a different story but i feel yeah. like and that happens too where you got yeah 15 processors going trying to make something work but in a lot of cases when i like if i start adding up a lot of processors and i'm still not finding what i'm looking for the first thing i start doing is is shutting them off <laughs> right like what, what here doesn't need to be here because clearly something doesn't need to be here but yeah, um, trying to do as little as possible, or I'm sorry, do the most as possible with as little processing as possible is is a good idea because it always just retains the mix better. You, <clears throat> The big thing for me is the depth and the space. When I'm working on stuff, I'm listening to the space between sounds and how it's being affected. Um, not just that, you know, obviously if you're putting a limiter on something, it's going to affect the snare drum directly. But when you're compressing something or EQing something where I find trouble and trouble that doesn't necessarily call attention to itself immediately is between the sounds. What's going on behind the vocal before it gets back to those drums? Because that's right. what changes to me. The depth changes. You do something and all of a sudden there's no depth. I got no depth, you know? <laughs> and you got to have a pretty good monitoring system to be able to hear those minute changes, but they do translate after you're finished and you've crystallized it and captured it, you know, it, it is, it does, you can hear that stuff, whether it's been captured or not. The, the let, if that stuff is messed up during mastering, when they listen to it as a codec, it's way messed up. You know, it sounds even worse. But if all of that is maintained, I get that all the time. Why, why, why would you use a $13,000 stereo system when it's going to get played out of a phone? It's like, well, because if I mixed it on a phone, it would sound like it was coming out of a shoe. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah, right. we, wanted, we wanted to sound as good as possible. And in order to do that, we need to hear the stuff in between because that's what's going to be affected by codecs. And anyway, that's... So yeah, you that's know, where, where I'm usually listening is, is in the depth and stuff. So when stuff messes sure. with that, it completely throws me off my game. Well, I don't know who said it. I don't remember. It was somebody said this to me. I don't remember if it was a live engineer or a recording engineer or a mastering engineer. I, I can't remember, and I feel terrible that I, I don't. But one thing that always stuck out to me when I first started you know, really getting serious about recording and mixing was somebody told me, don't listen to the music itself primarily. When you first start your mix, listen to what's not there. Listen to the empty space. How does that sound? And then shape your mix around the empty space. Right. And if you have, and then if you have no empty space, start making room. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I doubt. I that prefers like when I'm doing reverbs. So if I'm mixing or something and I'm setting up a reverb, there's always that big splashy reverb that's obvious. But yeah. in general, like a good reverb on an instrument or a vocal doesn't call attention to itself. And I always found when setting those up that you set it up and then you get it to sound good. And then I turn the fader all the way down and I add just enough of it in to where when I mute the track, it doesn't sound right anymore. So it's the absence of the reverb that doesn't sound right as opposed to the reverb's correct. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think it's kind of the same thing. They're looking for the space within the song to, I, I yeah, just there, there needs to be a space there, a picture where things exist. No, you know, like direct guitars off of amp modelers don't sound mm -hmm. like they, have, they exist in a space. You can put all the reverb on them you want. They sound like a signal floating there. It doesn't exist in any kind of space. You know what I mean? And well, a bad yeah. mix to me doesn't exist in any kind of space. It's just a bunch of signal there. That's when somebody starts mixing and you're not learning, you don't know how to create that or manipulate it yet. And you think you got to fill everything up. You know what I mean? And 
like a good song, a lot of times what feels the best is having that openness and that pause, you know, let that pause breathe. And then that impact that's coming next is even bigger. And it works dynamically and macrodynamically over a song, sections of a song, or the notes of a song. Yeah, agreed. Totally. It It's, it's something that I, I don't think a lot of people understand that, at least when they start in this crazy world but i i do think that if you're going to be good at it you do have to understand the idea of space and right. what sounds real or now one another thing once when i was learning that one of the it was something out of bob katz's mastering book and he was like just start being an observer of sound if you're sitting at a bus stop what does it sound like when the big trucks go by what does it sound like you know because there's a doppler effect that when things go by what that is, if you sit there and listen to it, when things are farther away from you, they have less high frequency. As it gets close to you, it gains in high frequency, and then it goes away, it loses it again. And that's the basis of a Doppler effect. You know what I mean? <laughs> and yep. it's just listening, what's going on in nature? What does this really sound like? Even though modern recordings don't always sound like anything natural, knowing how to create that and how you can manipulate it also gives you the ability to manipulate it in the other direction and have it still sound natural and cool. Of times, sure you know? sure you know it's funny you bring that up what what does a bus stop sound like because i uh <laughs> no sincerely so i i am a college student i'm i just finished my second full year of school um what a crazy ride it's been anyhow in the one semester i actually got to go to school well semester and a half really <laughs> but in the let's call it a semester in the one semester i actually was allowed to go to school <laughs> i i uh, had to sit at a bus stop and my favorite thing to do if I wasn't listening to one of my mixes or listening to uh, an album that's a favorite of mine is I would just you know sit in the bus stop uh, oftentimes by myself because of the way my class times were this was a busy line but I was able to kind of get on this relatively busy stop by myself which was kind of cool anyhow um, I would listen to the bus when it came up, I, I would go, I would ask myself the question, you know, what does the bus sound like when it's pulling up versus when I'm in it? And when I get off the bus, what does the bus sound like <laughs> when, it's, when it's moving away? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's funny that you mentioned a bus stop because that was, right. that was something that I did as practice. Interesting. Um, well, yeah. And it, by the way, I can tell you from experience that that's going to drive you mad in a few years because you can't, sh once you, Okay, there's this technical, by the way, I don't know the no exact numbers, but if I remember correctly, there's a thing that goes on in your brain where you can, the average listener, average person can only hear three things at once and everything else gets delegated to background noise. Another good thing to know when you're mixing, by the way, you know what I mean? If you, nothing, not every track needs to be loud and obvious because you can only hear three of them at any time anyway, or the average person can. But mm -hmm. somebody who's a trained listener who's been, you know, your job for years has been to listen into these sounds and try to listen between them. And, and, and if you're actually going out and paying attention to what it's like in the real world to, to use that as a tool, you, gets to the, you get to a point where you're in a restaurant and you can't shut off the other five conversations from the tables around you. And I sometimes have, I, I have trouble hearing people at the table with me because I'm hearing the conversation to the left and the right and the guy pounding on ice behind the bar 
and I can't shut it off, you know? <laughs> um, and it just comes from years of sitting there listening to in between everything and training your brain to hear more than one or more than three things at one time. Um, it can get a bit maddening in that regard, like going home for Thanksgiving and being in a room full of 20 people that are all having different conversations. I got to dip outside and be alone every now and then because <laughs> it'll start to get to me where I can't, it'll start freaking me out and making me anxious, which is weird. But, uh, yeah, I can tell you that that training yourself really well <laughs> can also make you a bit mad. <laughs> oh, it, it already has. So I, I actually have a good story about this. So this was the first time that I heard that I – and this is like a favorite album of mine, and I didn't know how to turn it off. Um, <laughs> so I, I couldn't I, – I could hear the snare track, and I could hear the kick track. So I was, <laughs> I was in a car. I, I'm coming home from a like a going-away party or some kind of party or something, and I'm like – I don't know. It, I've been there for 12 hours. I had a I had a demo session that ended up not doing anything. And uh, then we had a party and and we jammed and we jammed all night. And I, I'm sitting in the car and I decide to play a record. And there's a record of a dear old friend of my father's, a guy named Craig Dreyer, who was actually also on the show. And it's a record that I've been listening to my entire life. And I was able to hear, you know, I'm on I'm probably track two or three in and I can hear the space in between all the instruments. And then all of a sudden I can hear the different drums being hit. I can hear the bass drum. I can hear the kick in and the kick out. I know there's a kick out on the, on the, on the bass drum. You know, I can hear the snare bottom. I can hear the overheads. <laughs> I can hear the bass track. I'm like, I have a feeling I know what amp you used. You know, I can, I can hear the guitars on on the track i know what the whirlitzer sounded like in the room and i can hear the vocal and i've always had a hard time mixing vocals on studio monitors to it's either for for a long time it was either always above the mix or below the mix and didn't sit in the mix you know yeah. and i think that's a that's a hard thing to kick and all of a sudden i could hear it out i could hear this vocal which i always thought was a wonderfully mixed vocal outside of the mix <laughs> i uh the first time that i remember hearing a space in a recording it was believe it or not like something i'd heard literally millions and millions of times was the end by the doors um, oh yeah when i had my first really really great pair of monitors you know some stupid expensive monitors that are unbelievably accurate and gorgeous and I was just listening to different music and when he that first note when he goes this is him you know <laughs> when he kicks in with that you can hear the room he's in. It's a 70s studio. And I think if I remember correctly, it's Sound Factory even. But you can mm -hmm. hear, the, the you know, in the 70s, a lot of times they had carpet on the walls. You can hear this dense, overly dead, carpeted room that he's in. That's it's He's in the middle of it. And it's got to be like maybe four to six feet square or maybe not square. But I was like, holy shit, I can hear the room he's in. I can hear the reverb of his room. And it wasn't the reverb of the recording because you can hear that too. That was separate. Right. But yeah, I just remember like being amazed that I could hear this and and uh yeah, and by the way, having a really amazing set of speakers can make all kinds of weird stuff stick out. I can in uh Black Dog, Led Zeppelin Black Dog. Yep. On my my old Lipinski, I've never heard on any other speaker, but on the Lipinski monitors and I'm sure there's others that'll do it. Those were just the most accurate speakers that I've gotten to know really well. And in uh Black Dog when they every time they keep stopping, you can hear like John Bonham does these teeny tiny little 16th note clicks before a downbeat. It's like, mm -hmm. and then goes, tick, 
<laughs> and you can barely hear him. But then um, when the during the chorus parts where it gets like kind of chugging along, and he's playing that, you can hear him grunting <laughs> as he's playing. And he's a big dude, you know what I mean. So I'm sure he was right. making some noise. But uh, now when I listen to it on other systems, I can kind of pick it out. But you could not ignore it on the the uh, Lipinski system that I I used to be working on. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm not on super. I, I'm I'm on the cheapest of of what you could call studio monitors. I I still run KRKs. I'm going to be either switching to Focal's or Atom Audio stuff. Nice. Um, just because that's that's what I'm familiar with outside of KRK. Uh-huh. Anyhow, um, but I remember it, similarly. Every I think it was what um, I think it was come together right that that John yells out ah fucking hell. <laughs> yeah i think there's a couple of those things in beatles songs <laughs> yeah anyhow i don't i think it's come together but i don't i don't remember exactly but i remember the first time i got these speakers that i have now and they're not the greatest speakers you know the low end is kind of I, i'm running on five inch woofers they're they're mm-hmm. not really they're not that great good enough for good enough for what i was doing at the time uh-huh. but not not act, act super accurate anyhow i the first time i listened to a beatles record i remember that i had heard that he had said fucking hell and i remember hearing the like sort of like the oh part but not the fucking hell and then all of a sudden i'm listening to a beatles record just casually relaxing in front of these speakers and all of a sudden there it was <laughs> <laughs> nice you know? that's awesome you can pick out the littlest, weirdest things of, yeah. of the the flaws. Yep. Yeah, by, by the way, another one that I've, I picked up on the Lipinski's that I've, I've actually checked other places, and it's true. The uh, the main vocal in, in uh, Fire and Rain, James Taylor's Fire and Rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm forgetting now. It's kicked off to the right or the left side a little bit. Like ah. it's, it's not centered, and I don't know if it's a mixed flaw or if it's just his guitar mic maybe bleeding, and the, the guitar is panned off a little, and it's bleeding with the vocal mic, and so it's nudging it off to the side. But it's not centered, and it drove me mad because I was using that song to listen to some stuff when I was setting up stereos, you know what I mean? <laughs> setting up new, <laughs> new listening systems. And that's how I figured it out. I was like, man, the speakers are jacked up. And we're doing all these tests, and everything sounds right and looks right you know, in our tests, but we listen to this one song, and he's off-centered. And it turned out the actual recording, master recording, the vocals are off center. Not a lot, but enough to where it was pretty obvious in a really tuned room like that. Well, a lot, you know what? A lot of Beatles records have slightly off center, though. But that's, I think that was sort of intentional. It, like some some of their stuff, the the vocals are completely off to the sides. But yeah. there, there's other ones like, especially when they're doing the the John and Paul stuff, um, where it's where it's the two of them sharing a song mm-hmm. or or two people sharing like they'll be ever so slightly off to the side yeah noticed and that makes sense yeah just so that they're you know this is my verse this is my verse it makes (laughs) sense it's understandable i was doing an archiving job for universal one time and it was everything they had like from the 40s to whenever we started on it and there was a bunch i got a tape one day or it was probably a few tapes of like over a few weeks but of a, a comedian, a Southern comedian named Jerry Clower, who I've never heard of other than this, but there was, he had millions of tapes in the 70s, like 60s, 70s, I don't remember. Never heard of him, and he was horrible, horrible Southern comedian. But <laughs> <there> was, <laughs> he was just bad. 
it was fun because of the job, you know what I mean? But anyway, there was one of them I got one night that we thought was had to be screwed up or it had to be like a something like that was captured strange for a certain playback system or something. Right. Um, because but after listening long and checking all the notes and, and everything, it was a, a comedy show, right? Like, you know, you, you know, like have a Steve Martin record or, or uh, Adam Sandler records and stuff. And so we had a Jerry Clower record and the, the he it was it was as if it was recorded from standing off to the side of the, of the the nightclub because the audience was on the right side and Jerry was on the left like he was up on stage and here's the audience and you were watching it from the side like a tennis match <laughs> it was the weirdest format it was horrible like it was hard to like pay attention to the jokes just because it made you feel so weird <laughs> 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 I don't I by the way the who there was some weird who stuff like that that I ran into as well with weird panning stuff from like early days when they didn't have a knob but it was like a left center right switch so you didn't have as right. much control so like I don't know there's some Beatles records like that too where all the drums are off to the left and the bass is on the our drums and bass on the left and everything else on the right but it still sounds like it's in stereo coming out the center unless you really start listening and you know on headphones or something well, yeah, unless unless you're listening on headphones, that stuff yeah. sounds cool. But I, I mean, they were. It's they hard, were, by the way. That's hard. I don't know if you ever tried to mix something like that, but it's fucking hard to get it to sound centered and full when all the drums are on one side and guitars are on the other. Anyway, what were you gonna say? Well, I mean, in the case of the Beatles, they were kind of doing. I, I think their whole deal was they were trying to do that intentionally, just to like screw yeah. with people in a way. Oh yeah, you know? not, that, not, with... like not genuinely screw with people, but you know, screw with them in like that they were they were breaking the mold. Right. Yeah. And the, man, the albums at that time have such cool shit going on like that because, and, and this is going to make me sound like an old man, but right now we've got way too many processors. Every week, some new plugin comes out that's going to mess up your audio in some way. But like, uh, a good example is, uh, what is it? Axis Bold as Love by Jimi Hendrix. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the song, it starts flanging and the whole song, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this i don't know how accurate this is but what i've heard about that happening and it was one of the first times it was used in that way he would they were mixing it down or i don't know if they're in mastering or if they were mixing it down but he leaned on a tape machine enough to slow down one of the tape flanges or something <laughs> and <laughs> and it pulled the tape off of the head a little bit and it went and he freaked out man i got to i got to have that all over the end of the, you know what i mean and so they ended up putting the entire mix through it, and they were manually doing that at the end of that. And it's it's extreme. It's not like a subtle effect. Right. Um, but yeah, that kind of mother of invention. You know what I mean? Like, I got a sound in my head. What do we have here that's going to let me get it out? As opposed to, I've got a million tools here. What can I maybe use one of them that will sound unique? <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Like, I, I know that makes me sound old, but that idea no. of the Beatles, those, those panning things when the Beatles were doing it, that was 100% you know intentional. Them and George Martin were like purposely trying to break the mold and they had all this new gear that was being built by people because they were trying to get the sound out of their head and that is such a more interesting concept to me and i love that you know like this is something no one's heard before and that's what everybody strove for back then where now it's so based on trying to get your shoe deal and and get your tv spot you know what i mean and, and your reality show and it's just a celebrity thing it, the music seems to be such a sidebar for most for most of it, you know what I mean. You know what? Call the nineteen-year-old an old man. I, I mean, I I, <laughs> I I started I started going gray at fifteen, so fuck fuck everybody. But it's it. I completely agree with you. I mean, I see a new plugin 
every five minutes. And I love Waves gear, but you know. And by the I, way, I how many at, how many of them do you see that are something that's new and unique and not just the fifteen millionth compressor? Because what we need is another compressor with a bunch of knobs that do really subtle stuff that you don't really need. Or alternatively, <laughs> how, you know what? You know what? How many fucking eleven seventy six digital uh, emulations do we need? How many of them? I think it was my. I mentioned him earlier. Dave Nichols was a guy that, that he owns. He's a recording engineer in Phoenix, and he owned a studio called Living Head for a long time, and that's where I really got a lot of my learning done. You know what I mean? Um, as far as like interacting with clients and actually working with and for people. Um, but yeah, he was telling me one time. Um, I just blanked. What were we talking about? I'm sorry. Once again, Digital I'm an old man. Digital oh, emulations. Right. And he was, we were talking about kind of the same thing, you know, like why do we need 15 million digital compressors, you know? And, and at that time there wasn't that many of them, but the whole range of like everybody, every compressor that comes out has to look like something from the sixties. Yep. And at that time, none of them sounded like it, but they all looked like it. And he was like, man, I don't understand. Like a lot of these digital compressors and EQs sound great. I don't know why we have to make them look like a Pultec. Or look like an 1176. Why can't we just make a great digital compressor? And I, yeah. I the, the, the answer there is marketing. You know what I mean? Like somebody sees mm -hmm. this and recognizes it and, you know, they're new to recording. So they don't know there is a difference. And there isn't that much anymore. I'm talking about back then. Right. You know what I mean? But like, I don't understand the idea of constantly. And they still do that to this day. You know what I mean? Constantly put out emulations of stuff. And how about you just make something new and amazing that I want to buy because your product is fucking amazing. Well, there's, you know what? I, I completely agree with you. Uh, the, like, there are certain emulations which are really, really cool, you know, especially if you don't have access to, to gear. Like, for, right, for the Project right. Studio, having having an 1176 and and having two different plugins of an 1176, one blackface, one blue stripe, I'd understand that. Or, like, you know, even even up in the in the big studios, Hey, I want to run through a Red Thirty Seven plugin. Waves has that. You can you can run through the Beatles console only virtually. You know that right. that sort of thing I get. But like virtual tape emulation, and you know the millionth eleven seventy six and LA two A. Yeah. You know, like the hardware yeah. clones make more sense than than the than the software emulations because and at least with the at least the hardware clones you can you can find unique ways to emulate them and make it your own. With, right. with circuit design versus programming. And I'm a program. I'm a I'm a computer science major. Saying, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I last thing anyone needs is another fucking LA2A plugin. By the way, LA2A yeah. is probably the only compressor I would put on a vocal unless it had to be something else. But I don't need 15 million LA2As from 20 different companies. You know what I mean? I will admit, I would probably end up putting a distressor. <laughs> I, I, do love, I do love LA2As. Yeah. And by the way, with emulations, the UAD stuff, I think, is absolutely... There's a lot of them that are amazing, but the UAD stuff, especially the stuff in the past couple of years, sounds amazing. I gotta, well, you, know, you can't argue that it sounds great. Once again, they could have put out a product that didn't look like an API console and have something sound amazing and you know, have it maybe become something that people wanted to use 30 years from now and emulate 30 years from now. As opposed to something that's going to get less left in the dust thirty days from now. Which no, seems I mean to be the trend. <laughs> well, I mean the one the one plugin from Waves that really looked interesting to me lately was um, what is it called? I think they're calling it Ovox, and it came out just like a couple of months ago, I think. 
And Ovox, the whole deal was it was for you know production. You could you could like hum hum a thing into it, and it would you know grab it, and you could put the plug in on, and it would turn your voice into a synthesizer. It was for people who could like you know you, you could sing into it, you could beatbox into it, and you could make a whole track out of that if you want it to be electronics going from your voice. It's kind of like a, I, I think it, I saw a quick commercial for that, but I was in the middle of something else and didn't end up looking into it. But yeah, tell me about that. That's interesting. Well, I mean, in a way, it's almost like a vocoder. You know what I mean? It's like you know, you're using your voice to control. Um, you're you're using your voice to control the sounds, but unlike a vocoder, it's actually picking up your voice. Right. So, like, you could talk into a vocoder and play the instrument that the vocoder is attached to, and what's going to come out is what you're saying, but not what you're singing, per se. Right. It, it's yeah, going it, to... The whereas, quick thing that I th saw, I think it was a guy had, a, like, a trumpet patch on it, and he was going, bop, 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 and it sounded like a trumpet playing. Yep. Yeah, people have been, people have been you know, running vocals through it. I've, I've seen some guys, like, beatbox into it, I think. Um, bass looked compelling through it. It was, it was a neat effect, but it was, it was not necessarily for us in the mix or master world it was very much a production small like guy in their bedroom kind of right vibe, you know I, I think that's really interesting and what i saw of it it sounded pretty interesting like i just like i said i just saw a quick thing but it was impressive once again the old man in me comes out and goes isn't that just dumbing shit down so that there doesn't require any talent <laughs> i mean if anybody can walk into a room and go and have a guitar part, then why does anybody want to learn how to play a real guitar anymore? Or and it just there's more and more of the soul just getting let out of the balloon. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, you know what the the thing that I want to see is a real well trained acapella group record and do something with it. But short of that, or short of somebody who's like a really well trained vocalist. Or or something of that ilk. I don't really want to it, like it's a nif put, put together a whole composition like different right. instruments with it. Yeah, I, that's interesting. Don't get me wrong. I do believe that's interesting. It's I just it's, I hate the idea of gear being designed to make it simple. I, I really do. Not that it shouldn't be easy to be done. I was saying earlier that I prefer to make every, my layout extremely simple so I can listen to the music. Right. Right. But making the music that should require talent and energy and the way that good music comes out in most cases is through fucking struggle. And you don't get that by going ba 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 and having a trumpet play perfectly. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I I look at I look at software like this and and oftentimes when I see it I go, "Wow, this is really cool. Why did they make this?" You yeah. know? Like, yeah. sure, the, the, the functionality is impressive. Yes, you've done a very good job with your programming. Whoever's your brat, whoever did your back end, I want to shake their hand. <laughs> Why, who on your R&D team decided that this was a good idea? But somebody it's probably going to smell like hotcakes. So. Somebody who's not a musician decided that was a good idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> somebody yeah. who didn't spend 20 years of their life getting good at an instrument. <laughs> and, that's, and, that's probably, and that's probably who, uh, that's probably who designed Melodyne. Yeah. By the way, Melodyne's freaking amazing, too. I remember back before, like, once again, Old Man and Me coming out, there was a what, what, something by TC. They paired together with another company called TC Helicon, and they made a rack device that was like a vocal processor that did all, you can, you know, you sing into it, make me sound like a woman, or, you know, different, a whole chorus of people. And it was actually pretty high quality, especially for whatever time it was. 
but and I never got the opportunity to do this, but I always wanted to take that and put it on instruments, kind of the reverse of what we're talking about. Um, it's a processor meant to process vocals, and I wanted to put it on instruments, guitars, whatever, drums, pianos, and see what kind of effect it would do to it when you're trying to model it into a woman's voice. And it may just be lame pitch shifting stuff. And like I said, never got a chance to do it. But I was always interested in using something that was designed that way for a completely different source. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I remember, because TC Helicon still makes some of that stuff. I mean, TC oh, Electronic, okay. and, and TC Electronic makes, you know, the, the, the guitar and bass pedals and, yeah. and, and bass amplifiers and all that stuff. And then Helicon does all the, the vocal effects gotcha. and vocal processing stuff. And I've always wanted to look at some of the Helicon gear and go, what if we ran like a, a, a mono synth through that you know i don't I, i'm i'm concerned what would happen if somebody ran a guitar through it um mm -hmm. especially like a rhythm guitar because i feel like it would get tripped up on chords nah, too many notes yeah it would have to be single notes you're right but uh, but i would be really uh interested to hear something like a guitar lead um or a mono synth or something like that or a bass you know yeah going, something like a bass through. would be cool you know what i mean it's like a totally yeah. <laughs> of course i'm only imagining what i think it would sound like <laughs> right but right. uh i'm sure it's been done plenty of times by now well you know there's always room for experimentation right just, just look at the five million plugins on the market now, <laughs> now I, w I want to jump back a little bit because we had talked about monitoring um but i i think i think i i want to get a little bit deeper into it because monitoring is kind of especially in an in-the-box situation monitoring is kind of everything um how do you approach monitoring um i probably in a pretty traditional mastering way like the monitoring isn't just the speakers it's the room as well right um i uh not on purpose, but I have I have a lot of experience with acoustics as well, and I've actually helped build a lot of studios. And when I was at United, I had to, there was quite a lot of, of stuff that had to be done acoustically. Um, anyway, I, I have a bit of a background in that, and the more that I learn about it, the more I realize how true that is. Um, but yeah, generally traditional mastering kind of, of of thought process where I'm looking for really accurate speakers that I know. You know, I, I can set up in a room and get a frequency response from zero hertz to a little above 20 hertz. That's, you know, plus or minus one dB or less, you know, and one dB is going to be an ex near the big peak that you usually have somewhere in the low mids. Um, but yeah, you, and it's, it's totally doable. There's like acoustics technology. It's unfortunately, it's never been cheap and it's not cheap but it's cheaper than it's ever been. Like Prima Acoustics and GIK have incredibly reasonably priced stuff that it just works wonders. Like for what you get for $300 for Prima Acoustics is, is amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it would take thousands to build a lot of that kind of stuff um, custom. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I prefer really accurate monitoring. Um, I like it tight and defined. I don't want something that sounds pretty. Um, I've never been a big fan of Genelec speakers. There's, a, by the way, there's a number of them that I do like a lot. But as far as like working on them, they don't relate to me because they sound too fucking good. Everything sounds good <laughs> out of them. I can't hear a problem. I want to be able to hear the problems. You know what I mean? Um, 
I, for the past 15 years, roughly, I've been working with Lipinski L707s and uh, a couple different types of subwoofers over the years. But, um, and subwoofers meaning dual subwoofers. A single subwoofer is actually a bigger problem than not having a subwoofer in a lot of cases. It causes all kinds of weird stuff. It's it, Everybody's like, oh, but isn't two of them going to cause a bunch of bass problems? And no, it's actually going to allow you to run them both lower. They're going to sum together acoustically, which creates much less distortion. The amps are distorting less. The speakers are distorting less because of the less volume level. And anyway, it's much easier also because you don't have a single point source from a single sub that is going to hit a wall and reflect directly back at it. You set up two of them in a symmetrical way, and the reflections are different. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm going down a rabbit hole there. Um, no, please do. <laughs> but basically, the idea being that you have you know, a really super accurate speaker system. Um, I prefer to have mains, like you know the, the highs, mid-range, low mid-range in one unit, and a separate subwoofer. In my experience, it just makes it our separate subwoofers. In my experience, it makes it so much easier to align a system and get it to be flat because you can place the subwoofer where it's going to get the best frequency and phase response and tune it to the speakers. You know what I mean? And and so you're building a single full-range system, but you're tuning a subwoofer with the room to where it sounds best and gets the best response and then using technology to work that back into time correctly with the main speakers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I've, I really love the Lipinski L707s. They're unbelievably accurate. For me, it's one of the most accurate speakers I've ever used. Like as far as like I could, you know, you can hear the crackle in the back of somebody's voice in the middle of a mix if you need to. And you know, so if there's going to be a tick or a pop or a little distortion on something, it's, it's obvious. And it's usually obvious where it's coming from. Um, mm-hmm. Like in a mix, you know, okay, that was clearly the, the vocal that's distorting, and it's probably the mic that was distorting. We're not going to be able to fix that. You know, you can, you can hear the differences and all that stuff. At the same time, I could turn them on when I was soldering something and just listen to my favorite music, and it was enjoyable. There's a lot of really accurate – I'm not going to name any names because I, I, <laughs> I know a lot of the manufacturers and stuff, but – there's a lot of extremely accurate speakers that are very true and accurate, but they're so sterile and boring to listen to. They're no fun. They don't have any feeling. It's all well, accuracy. I, I've 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 started calling speakers in that category sort of laboratory speakers because they have such surgical precision. You can hear everything. Uh-huh. But if you and, want to relax and or like if you want to reference a master, a past master, or something on the internet or something, you're you're not you're not going to be able to because you're going to, I mean, you'll do it with surgical precision, but if you want to like step back and go, what makes this good? Why am I enjoying it? Mm-hmm. You kind of can't do that because you have to listen to everything separate. Yeah. Speaker like and that. by the way, Lipinski's once again, were so surgical and so they were microscopes and, and you know what I mean? And it's just not just my opinion. There are a lot of people that really feel that way. And yeah. a lot of people that have used them for years have moved on to other things. So it's not, you know, the end all be all, but I was amazed at the accuracy and also how good they sounded. And just to have them on when I'm hanging out, I could and I could listen to James Taylor or I could listen to Lil Uzi Vert, and both of them sound fucking great. You know what I mean? <laughs> For different reasons, completely. But and I, you can't do that on some speakers, especially a lot of audiophile speakers. There's a lot of audiophile speakers that sound amazing if you're listening to the right kind of music. You know what I mean? Like the guy that designed it only liked blues. 
And so he tuned all of his speakers to, to sound great for blues. <laughs> and not, not that I don't, by the way, I like blues, but I want to be able to listen to everything. I like a lot of different music, but, but yeah, or so that's good. Or you'll, you'll see some of these guys who are, I mean, in the last 15 years with the, with the advent of hip hop being the mainstream, uh, biggest fucking genre out there. You see them start tuning for hip hop and pop and, and, and like, that that very it's not necessarily stuff that i i listen to full time but it's it's that stuff that you know ev- everybody likes listening to these days yeah um and and you'll so you'll see that especially in the bass response yeah yeah yep i have a little uh, little bluetooth speaker that i use around the house sometimes and it, <laughs> it's by the way it sounds absolutely horrible but its bass response is the worst <laughs> like everything's just going <laughs> just woofing out completely and I think it's kind of designed, like you were saying, to have a lot of bass because that's what people want to hear. But well, it just doesn't sound good to me. That's why beats are the are yeah, absolutely. the way they are. Because yeah. they, they want, you know, they, they well, they want Dr. Dre's name on the shit, but they also want, <laughs> you know, they also want we're going to make these tune for idiots who don't know what they're I mean, they're not idiots, but like it's just the average person, you know what I mean? We're we're morons being such nerdy into sound, yeah. you know what I mean, when the rest of the world doesn't care. But if we weren't, they would care even less. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, um, back to the, the speaker thing. The other thing as far as my whatever philosophy or whatever is I do not like having multiple sets of speakers. Um, really? I, I see some mastering guys. By the way, most mastering guys that I, I know of and see have one main set of speakers, and they might have like a smaller set. I used to use this Bluetooth speaker I was telling you about. I did have it hooked up to my system at United, and it was something that I would use to check and see how bad something might sound. You know what I mean? Like, right. If I'm doing something that has huge bass, if it makes this thing distort, it's too much. We need to reduce it. You know what I mean? So Stuff like that. Um, but I don't like a bunch of different speakers. They To me, it just... It skews what's correct. You know, which one of these is correct? I'm listening to it on a bunch of different systems here. They all sound different. Which one is actually the right one? And going back and forth between them just messes up my brain as far as like what I'm actually listening to. They, 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 both speakers have no reference between them to each other. So trying to listen to multiple speakers just messes me up. But I think that that's fairly common with mastering guys having one main set of speakers. And by the way, it yeah. could be because they're so fucking expensive, nobody can afford a second pair. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but I'm gonna, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go spend ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty grand on my on my on my monitors. Now now I'm gonna go spend forty grand on my rack. Right. Do I? I'm not gonna have money left over for my yeah. monitors. At the same time, though, that's the most important tool and the most important piece of gear, at least, is the speakers and the room around it. Because if that isn't accurate, you're making all kinds of decisions on your stuff that aren't necessarily going to be true. And how to what extent to what extent is another story. You know what I mean? Well, you know, I think when I think of mastering engineers and guys who only keep one set of speakers and I completely understand this. I I only think back to a video that Fab Dupont did nearly a decade ago now about mastering, which is you know he he talked about how impressed he was uh, at the fact that a lot of really really high end mastering engineers will spend up to seven figures or more 
on the room and you know maybe only albeit high five figures but still five figures on the gear Mm -hmm. and you know i i can understand that and in the case of a lot of people who only use one set it's like to me it's a little bit crazy to my head that somebody wouldn't have a pair of like crappy desk speakers that some guy in their office would yeah. put. And that, that's what I'm using this little the Bluetooth thing for. Right. By the way, I didn't have it hooked up for Bluetooth in the studio, but that was the idea. I had another piece of shit. And by the way, if I needed to, I could walk down the room and listen to something, and I'd walk down the hall and listen to it in another room. Right. Um, when, I, when I had a home studio, I had a stereo out in the living room that was wired into my studio. So if I wanted to, I could go check it out there. But that's usually something I'm doing when I'm finished to make sure I don't have any problems that I'm not aware of. But to, to kind of like the end point of that is, and I, once again, this is something I first learned from Bob Cass's book, but over time, I, I believed it to be hundred percent true. Um, if you're working on a really great, accurate stereo system, that's truly accurate and it's set up correctly. Um, the, what you work, the work you do translates to all these different things. It translates to a thousand dollar hi-fi system and a club's speaker system and it, your earbuds and your phone. There's well, something yeah. about the yeah. ability to work on the sound in that much detail that ends up translating to all those other systems. So that's another reason for that is, you know, if you've got something that's, that's going to be accurate and, and work and translate to all these other systems, it just skews your perception using a bunch of different versions of that sure i mean and that's one of the things you know i i do i do sometimes get surprised at the fact that people don't necessarily keep um multiple systems but i really shouldn't be because if you think if we go back to the idea of like somebody spent a million dollars on their room but 80 grand on all of their gear then you know the room is going to be accurate and if you pair that with proper monitoring which every mastering engineer who gives a shit of course they will um then you know that one set of speakers in the spot that they're set up to listen to that's going to translate they don't they don't need to yeah that's that's what i mean like you know what i mean but right yeah i don't know and in mixing once again mixing it's a little bit different you know because you you are listening to different sounds individually and how that works when you're mixing you know, it might work better with this speaker when you're doing on this. It might work better with these. But at some point, you got to decide which one of those is your main. You know what I mean? And and use that to make final decisions. Because every now and then you get torn up. Like, well, okay, well, which one of these is sounds great over here? Doesn't sound great here? Which one do I go with? <clears throat> and at some point, you got to make one of them your your main guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> the one. Well, you trust. I mean, I I think I think your monitor controllers say main and alt for a reason. Yeah. No, that's true. You know. Yep. You know. Like if if you're if you have a set of speakers that's your mains on your on your controller, then then that should be your mains. But I I completely agree with that. the 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 jump between mixing and mastering in that you need to reference individual solo tracks and and buses, and especially if there's a problem like you know, I've encountered uh, drums and bass not going together correctly, and you have to reference the individual tracks solid and then you have to in reference the buses of the bass and the drums together and you have to see then you have to pick it apart i understand multiple speakers for that i i embrace that yeah that it but it is very much very different when it comes to mastering in, again in my limited knowledge and understanding of of the art form 
Yeah, yeah. I uh, when I went, when I worked at Universal Audio, they had the rooms there were purpose built for studios, and there wasn't a whole lot of expenses spared. You know what I mean? They were just amazing. And sure, they had the two main mastering rooms were like thirty foot long by I think twenty something feet wide, and they were tall, too, like nineteen feet tall, I think something like that. And those obviously sounded great. Um, bass in a big room like that, that's controlled, a, a actually well-tuned room. Bass just, it's its a little bit different. It just, it's so much more physical because um, all of the bass frequencies have room to propagate. Like technically like, okay, let's, if we're talking to be nerdy here, a 20 Hertz waveform is about 30 feet long to go from yeah. positive negative. So you need a room that's at least 30 foot long to propagate a waveform like that without it also slapping off the back wall and getting on top of itself and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, those rooms were absolutely amazing, and they should be because they were large and they were built well. But we also had a couple of very small rooms, little production rooms, and then my mastering room was a stand, like a normal-sized mastering room. Um but there was also a couple of production rooms that were maybe, I think, six foot by 15. I don't remember exact measurements, but something like that. Um, and those sounded amazing, too, in, in, in such a way that, like, you could turn the, you could listen to the speaker as loud as you could handle it, right? And then turn it down to where you could barely hear it, and it had roughly the same frequency response. Um, anyway, the... It, I, before I worked there, I, I worked in a different number of different studios, and the... St- this home studio I had before I worked at Universal, I had a pretty, really great sounding room in it. It it was, by the way, it was a complete accident. It had more to the room do with the room than me. Um, <laughs> I didn't know much about what I was doing back then, but it ended up being a great sounding room. Fair enough. But when I uh, was working at Universal, it was the first time I'd worked in a really good room with really good speakers and really good equipment. And I hate to say it, but man, it was a different world. <laughs> like to be able to work in a room that's designed to produce sound with speakers that are designed to produce it incredibly accurately and beautifully. It's it's not only is it a pleasure to work, but like the work becomes so much easier because everything's anything that's a problem is just that much more obvious. And why it's a problem is that much more obvious, which gives you the ability to fix it or know that you can't fix it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that. If I had an unlimited budget, I would start with the room and build. I was gonna say build a room around speakers, right? But that's not that, that wouldn't be. There's a guy named Bob Ludwig out east, um, owns Gateway Mastering. Mm-hmm. He's one of the bigger name guys in the world, <clears throat> and uh, when he built Gateway, they drilled down to bedrock and built speaker stands up from bedrock. And then built the buildings around that, and the speakers are completely decoupled from the building. So there's no resonation from the speakers to the building physically. And they go down to bedrock, so there's no fucking resonation to begin with. <laughs> but, um, yeah, a resonation of physical, not the speaker. Obviously, speaker doesn't do but, but, yeah, anyway, I mean, that's, that's extreme, you know what I mean? And if you look at his studio, it's everything's to that extent, but... But I mean, if you're trying to get as accurate as possible, you got to start with the room because that's what's going to be reproducing the audio. You can't get away from the walls bouncing shit around. You know? Yeah, completely, completely. I'll be 
This has been a really fun and interesting conversation for a number of reasons, as most of my conversations are. For one, Warren is incredibly intelligent when it comes to the equipment he uses, as well as understanding that he doesn't need all of it. See, it's interesting. He talks about how he has kicked his gear lust, and it's apparent, but it's also incredibly apparent that he's incredibly well-versed in what he has and what he uses and what he might need in the future. This is something for us to strive for in the home studio world, because all of us look at all the gear in the big studios and say, we should have stuff like that. But in the end of the day, we really don't need all of it. Likewise, Warren has an incredibly tuned ear that can work with any type of music and understands how to differentiate and how to work through all of it. Warren, thanks for the interesting conversation and thanks for the laughs. It's been fun having you on and uh, I hope to catch up with you soon. This is Gear Talk, and today I want to get into guitar gear in particular because I am a guitar player, and I've really been into guitar gear lately, and specifically the acquisition of guitars and amplifiers. It's been something on my mind recently, especially since I'm gearing up for a couple of different records in the studio, and I wanted to do as much research and preparation as possible for all of them, so I got the best possible tones and maximized my dollar. Now, as most of you know from the talks I've had in the past, I am a huge Fender fanboy. I am a big Fender amp fanboy. And one of the things that you can do to differentiate sounds of Fender amps, especially when you're a fan of the piggyback heads like I am, is change out speaker cabinets or speakers. This is also true in the combo amplifiers, and it's a big help in making an amp sound different. If you only have one amplifier, but you have two cabinets, maybe a, I don't know, 1x12 and a 2x12, they're going to sound different. Maybe you have a 112 and a 215. Maybe you have a 212 and a 215 or a 115 or something like that. Speaker sizes and the amount of speakers and the size of the cabinet itself, the physical dimensions, will inevitably change how the cabinet sounds and how the amplifier sounds. And it's a really neat idea to bounce between speakers and amplifiers and see how much an amp changes the sound of a speaker and how much a speaker changes the sound of an amp. Likewise, in the case of a number of different guitar models like the Gibson stuff, SGs and Les Pauls, things like that, where they have different sets of pickups that they're well known for. In the case of the Gibson instruments, P90s, humbuckers, and mini humbuckers, it's interesting to listen to different guitars with different pickups and see just how similar or different they are. Now, there have been a number of people that have tried to disprove the Tonewood debate. Uh, Glenn Fricker had two identical guitars made 
just with different woods, but everything else hardware and electronics-wise was the same. Construction was the same. They were the same shape, same everything else. The difference was in the woods. And he put the instruments through distorted amplifiers and tried to make people guess between them. Now, I had a pretty hard time, admittedly, but I don't think that's the end-all be-all test for most people and most instruments. Now, for me, I take the approach uh, that Paul Reed Smith does. The pickups being very much like microphones in the case of the signal of the strings. And the guitar vibrating with the strings and help shaping that tone of what you're hearing out of your amplifier. Now, pickups, if we think about that, shouldn't change the tone itself necessarily, especially in a guitar of the same construction, but rather the voicing of that particular sound source. Very much like swapping between an SM57 or a Telefunken high-end tube condenser microphone would. It's the same sound source or incredibly similar, but it's still going to sound different because you've changed the microphone. But it will still be recognizable as that instrument or that voice. Now, upcoming, I'm going to be getting a couple of different Les Pauls in. We'll see if that changes, but that's the current plan. One with P90s, one with humbuckers. And I want to put that to the test. Likewise, I want to take a test of amplifiers and see how much speakers change the tone of the amp, and also how much an amp changes the tone of a speaker. Is it really that drastic of a difference if you put two different Fender piggyback heads through the same speaker cabinet? How similar will they sound? Now, some of this could fall through, but keep your eyes and ears out for the next couple of weeks. We're going to try and produce some video and some gear talk and music segments uh, trying to demonstrate this idea and we'll see what comes of it. This is Music from Blue Girl Today. I am showing off a track recorded for Los Gemelos, that is MC Infinite, and the producer Genesee, their duo collaboration album. This particular song is Panic Attack. Like I said, it was recorded here at my studio. Infinite came in and did the tracks. He and I have done some work together before, and we're doing more work upcoming. This track I'm really proud of. I engineered it, and... The amazement and pride I have for this man and this song and the fact that he did the part that I'm about to show all of you in one breath is amazing. Now, let me tell you this about MC Infinite. Opinion's subjective, but 
Carlos is quite possibly one of, if not the best rapper in the world. And I think this is a testament to it. Of course, like I said, opinion subjective, but I've known the man all my life, and I, I can't find anybody better. Um, this particular song is called Panic Attack. It was a crazy track to record. It was impressive to listen to live in the studio while he was recording these parts. And he did the part that I'm about to show all of you in one breath. Now, that may not sound impressive to you while I'm rambling on, but listen to the track and you'll be impressed. That's the show, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Miss Warren Sokol for coming on the show and telling us every little detail about mastering and his mastering workflow. Man, it was so fun having you on the show. Thanks for the laughs. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Everybody, tune in next time. We're going to have Mr. Rich Steve Beck on the show. He runs a Facebook group and a... Uh, community, for lack of a better term, called Produce, Mix, Fix, and Conquer. It is a uh, interview-based community. He interviews people much like me, uh, just in an online video format. In fact, one of the interesting things about Rich is he interviewed Bob Katz, who Warren brought up quite a bit uh, in today's episode. So I think you're going to enjoy that one. Rich is also a mastering engineer based out of the UK. And, uh, yeah, it'll be a good episode. I think you'll like it. Everybody tune in. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel, the D3 Cohen, signing off from Google Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record. <laughs>